turn in your Bibles to the third chapter, Song of Solomon, as we continue our study through the Word. What a glorious topic, love, the most powerful force that there is on the face of the earth. And, and love is the basis of our relationship with God. God is the initiator of God. We love God because he first loved us. We are responding to him. And, and so we see here in this book, Song of Solomon, it extols love. It extols marriage. And, and so we see that in the Bible, God has included this. He is the creator of the covenant of marriage. And in this story, we have the Solomon king, and we have the Shulamite women and um, woman, and she and Solomon are headed towards a marriage. We saw the courtship last time. We saw the desire for one another. We saw the intimacy of their relationship. We saw their conversations with one another, the building up of each other, and the longing to be in each other's presence. And as they continue to develop in their relationship, moving along that path of, of being connected together and then desiring to ultimately be committed into that covenant relationship of marriage. We talked last time about how marriage is that covenant in which we have the body, soul, and spirit that is connected together with the body, soul, and spirit uh, of another, and how this now completes this mystery, this union of the two becoming one. We see that in the courtship that the soul and the spirit are to be connected, but the physical intimacy, the body is not to be connected until after the wedding vows and the consummation of the marriage is to then take place. We see that in the Shulamite woman, the beloved, and we see in Solomon the desire increasing one for another, the, the hardship of having to part and that longing for that day when now finally the groom will come for the, the bride. The interesting thing in the marriage, the Jewish wedding, is that the, the bride never knew the exact time that, that the groom was going to come. And in that, there was this joyful period of excited waiting, this joyful waiting for the groom to come. Now, we talked last time about not only does the Song of Solomon represent the covenant of marriage, but it also reflects the relationship of Christ and his church. And we see that the Shulamite woman is now desiring for her beloved, longing for the day when they will be married and 
and she is going to come to that place of excited expectation of waiting and not knowing exactly when he is going to arrive. And that is the very season in which we are in right now as the bride of Christ, that Jesus has returned to his father's house. In my father's house, there's many mansions, and I go there to prepare one that where I am, you may be also, and, and that then he will come and get his bride. And, and what an exciting period that is when your whole future is glorious, when a whole new life is going to begun, and the dreams that you have are going to begin to be filled in and fleshed in. And the glorious future, you remember that Paul declared that I hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God, what Christ has prepared for, for those uh, who are his. And and so the, the excitement, what a, what a beautiful time in life when you are in that betrothed period. You're waiting for the wedding day. You're completing and putting the final finishing touches on that season of life where you are underneath the authority of your parents. You are in the home that you have grown up in. And, and now there is this departure into this new life that is filled with hope and dreams and vision. And for us, we live now in that same place, that same place of expectation and excitement that as we just sang, that any day the groom could come for the bride and, and we are off and on to the next chapter of the story where we are going to be reunited and we are going to be joined together with, with Jesus Christ. What a glorious hope we should be living with. What a glorious, exciting expectation that we should have in our hearts and in our lives, knowing that as we are journeying as pilgrims, uh, through to the time that either we will join him or he will come and get us, uh, that then the best is yet to come, that, that we are just completing this season right now in our lives, much as the Shulamite is now finishing her season as, as the beloved and as she is waiting. So, we saw last time their courtship. They are both drawn to each uh, other. They are enraptured by just being in each other's presence. And when you're in love with somebody, how much you desire just to spend time together, just to get into the, the presence. And you don't even really need to do anything. Just the fact that you're together is, is enough. Uh, and then having to depart and having to withdraw from one another creates that angst of when am I going to be able to get back into the, the presence? And then the longing for uninterrupted fellowship. And isn't that exactly what heaven is with Jesus Christ? Uninterrupted fellowship in his presence for, uh, for all eternity consumed in a consummated covenant uh, love of where we are enraptured by 
the glory of his existence. And so here we see the themes weaving back and forth between us as believers and the season that we are in, the Shulamite, uh, this beautiful bride that is waiting for her husband. And, and so as we begin this third chapter, we see that she has a, a bad dream. She has a nightmare. And the nightmare that she has is that she can't find her beloved. That where is he? And I'm separated from him. And, and the angst uh, that she feels uh, in this dream that, uh, that she is having. It says in verse 1 of this third chapter, By night on my bed I, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. And so the king had returned to Jerusalem. His beloved was at her home there in the country. And, and we see that now this separation in, in this dream, she, she can't find him. And there is that, that loss that she is feeling, that separation. When a person loves another person deeply, it's natural to fear losing him and her. And so in this dream, she's lost him. And that, that's represented of losing his, his love. And now that, that feeling that she has. I remember one time I was counseling a young couple, their premarital counseling, and getting them ready for the, their vows and, and to marry them. And, and I asked her, I said, when did you know that this was the guy that you wanted to marry? She sat and thought for a second, and she said, I remember the moment that I was sitting there and I was looking at him, and, and I was thinking, I don't want to lose him. It, it was the thought of that I was enjoying my life with him and getting to know him more and more, but it was suddenly imagining my life without that person and it was like i can't imagine my life not with the, that person and and that began the flip in her heart to now know that that this was the one when she couldn't imagine when that fear of losing that person was uh, was stunning here the shulamite is having this dream of Oh no, what I have been enjoying and experiencing, the love that I have been, been being bathed with, if it departs, then, then, then I'm in a terrible place, I'm in a terrible situation. And, and so she is going to do something about that. It says in verse 2, I will rise now, I said, and go about the street, in the streets and in the squares, and I will seek the one I love. And I sought him, but... I did not find him. You can imagine in the dream as she is chasing through the streets and looking and, and he's not there and he's not there and he's not there and, and where is he and that, that feeling, that pit in the stomach that, and, and the angst. And so the watchmen, verse 3, who go about the city found me. And I said, have you seen the one I love? So now the, the watchmen are, are there. She runs to them and asks, you know, have you seen him? And, and they apparently had not. And, 
those watchmen, they guard the city at night. And I am so thankful when I see these watchmen here and I think about the, the watchmen that we have that watch over our church, the men that have stepped up and the security that we have that just keep an eye on everything and keep everybody safe. And, and that is the ministry that God has called them to. And, and here, these men, these watchmen of the city, and, and so she's running around and, and they come up and see if she is all right. And she asks them if, if they have seen him, but they have not. And scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love. And I held him and would not let him go. You can imagine that hug. That hug of, of, oh my goodness, I thought I lost you. I don't know if as a parent you've ever experienced the brief losing of a child <laughs> in a public place or in a store. I know there was a, a moment that Amber and I experienced. Uh, uh, our child was right there with us. We were in a clothing store. And, and then we turned and just the coat racks, they were in circle racks and they were this tall, but our child was this tall. <laughs> and so you look across and and then when we finally grabbed him it just seemed like oh that hug that you give them it's like oh my gosh and then it's like and I'm gonna kill you for wandering away and so when I think of that embrace that hug that is described here I think of Mary Magdalene outside of the tomb when between these tear-strained uh, eyes, uh, she thinks she's talking to the gardener and asks, if you would just please tell me where you have laid his body, I, I will go and I, I will get him. And, and the Lord says, Mary. And she turns at the sound of her name in his mouth and instantly knows that it's the Lord. And she turns and she gives him one of these uh, hugs uh, right here. One of these uh, hugs where I, 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 I've lost you once. I'm not going to lose you uh, again. And she squeezed on him to the point where, where the Lord had to tell her not to cling to her so tightly. In the dream, she had lost her beloved and the disorientation and the fear and, and the angst. And now she found him again. And I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. And, and, and she brings him, I'm not letting you go. In, in her, she brings him home and, and into the house, but, but she wants even further intimacy. She wants to draw him even closer, and so she goes into the inner sanction of the house, which for her was her parents' bedroom. Growing up, our parents' bedroom was like 
the sanctuary in the house. The, it, it was the innermost, and you didn't just go into my parents' bedroom and uh, and all. And uh, but it was that that special private place for my parents. Here we see that that her not letting him go, bringing her to her house, bringing her into her, her, her mother's bedroom and, and into the chamber, it says, of her who conceived me. And so the tenderness, the affection, the intimacy, the, the, the devotion, we see all of that here and, and in this embrace and this reunion. And, and then we see the refrain in verse 5, the refrain is that is the chorus and it says i charge you O daughters of jerusalem by the gazelles or by the does of the field do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases love can be a powerful force in in the lives of uh, of men and women and unsatisfied or ignited without being able to act upon it can bring great grief to the heart. But we see that love, when it is requited, when it is returned, when it is kept in its proper sequence, we see the, the blessing of it. The warning is given and the refrain there marks the end of the section on courtship. And the last exhortation on the completion of the courtship was, was once again a caution, a, a warning not to arouse the passions. And this is talking about the, the physical passions. As, as you begin to get comfortable, as you start to head towards the altar, and, and the way in which couples can let their guard down to no longer protect themselves to their physical commitment of purity before the Lord. God's standard of purity during courtship is that you would remain absolutely physically pure with one another. We see that the Bible teaches and values uh, virginity in our lives that God's plan and purpose in courtship and marriage is that uh, we would be virginal, that we would be pure in our relationship during the courtship, and that the consummation would happen there uh, on the wedding night. Hear the caution, don't inflame it, don't get it started before it is allowed to have its fulfillment. And so those, those barriers and those boundaries of how important it is. We teach the youth the importance of impurity in relationships and the standard of conduct and purity that God has established in the Word. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament talks about believers abstaining from uh, sexual immorality and sexual activity before marriage. And so as a standard Christian rule, we instruct couples that when you are dating and on your way to marriage that you should observe the standard of purity of what is known as the bathing suit rule, which is that you should not be familiar or touch any parts of the body which will be covered by a bathing suit, even on the outside of your clothing, that you are to concentrate on your spiritual unity and on your emotional and friendship 
and that the physical is what is waited until afterwards. Here we see this refrain is repeated a second in time uh, here at the very end of the courtship as that, as that warning to keep yourselves pure before you are married. And, and that warning, I want you to know, that instruction is not just uh, for the young. I know that I was talking to an elderly senior individual as a Christian and she was dating some Christian men and they're like, wow, you know, I mean, that's, that's for when we were young. You know, we don't have much time and we don't really need to honor those standards. And she was like, oh, yes, we do. <laughs> but, that, uh, but that even there we see that those standards, they, they are applicable for the entire body of Christ. Love outside of the embankments that God has called us to is destructive in our lives. People who live together and are fornicating and we see that this is outside. They try and sanctify it by saying that we love each other or that we are going to get married and, and all of these are in the exact contradiction to the word and the will of God within our lives. So we see in the Shulamite and King Solomon this glorious courtship. We see that, that now it ends with this, with this warning. Now just don't wake love up. And that's talking about physical passion. Don't wake it up uh, until it is time. But, but now it is time. Now we see here in this sixth uh, verse the, uh, the wedding section here of the Song of Solomon is going to go from chapters 3 through to the first verse of chapter 5 and and so verse 6 is is the beginning of the wedding ceremony and and it says who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the merchants fragrant and powders and and so the beginning, the, the wedding ceremony starts with the procession to the bride's house. And, and so the groom wouldn't come with his groomsmen. And the bride wouldn't know exactly when. We already covered that. But there is now this procession that is starting to come forwards. And, and from the bride's perspective, from the Shulamite's perspective, she's on pins and needles. She's waiting for the groom to get there. And what does she see first? She sees this pillar of smoke, this cloud of, uh, of smoke. And, and the smoke is the frankincense and the myrrh that's being offered up as the procession is coming to, to reach her, coming to get the bride and all of the fragrant powers of, of the merchants and, and what a scene. I mean, you know, you talk about a, a white knight coming on a horse. This is here he is in this procession coming to her. And the scriptures teach that marriage is one of the most important events in a person's life. And so it is fitting that the union of the couple would be commemorated in an unforgettable, in a special way. 
the smoke that she sees and knows that he's coming now turns into, she can visually see, and he is now sitting upon his couch. Behold, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it and of the valiant of Israel and keeping with his dignity. The king is surrounded by strong soldiers, the best men, the choicest, the men from Israel. And, and they're carrying Solomon and he is on this couch and it is one of these magnificent couches or, or beds and tapestries. And the 60 men are carrying this like chariot that doesn't have wheels. And it is just glorious. And just in regular, ordinary marriages, the, the groom would come with his groomsmen, with his friends. But here the king comes now with his mighty, valiant men around. She sees him on the bed, on the couch that is being carried, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. The, the, the valiant men of Israel gathered around him. In verse 8, And they all hold swords, being expert in war. And every man has his sword on his thigh because of the fear in the night. And so these are capable soldiers. They're experienced. And, and what this shows is, is the protectiveness of the king over his bride. That he is now going to keep her safe. And as a husband, and now as the head of the household, as the head of the covenant of marriage, keeping wives safe and secure, physically, spiritually, emotionally safe and secure. And, and so here in this picture of in the Song of Solomon, we see the 60 valiant men that are armed that are going to absolutely make the bride feel safe and secure in her life. The king is taking no chances whatsoever of the wood of Lebanon. Solomon, the king, made himself a, a palanquin. And he made its pillars of silver, its supports of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. And so this carriage that he is on, this couch, was made of the very best that there was. The wood, the hard wood that formed the frame, this came from the wood of Lebanon. Lebanon is where they had the cedars, the mighty cedars and the hard, fragrant wood. We see that the carriage is adorned with, with the most expensive materials of silver and gold and purple representing royalty. And Solomon offered his bride the very best that he had. And his love for her brought out the best in him. And others shared in the couple's joy. We see the daughters of Jerusalem. They helped make the interior of the carriage and decorated it. And they did so gladly. They did so willingly. They entered into the joy of the bride and the groom. 
Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. And so in the procession, when Solomon came on this couch, perfumed and, and all, he wore this, uh, this crown. It was not his royal crown, but, uh, but a crown that his mother had made for him and placed upon his head. His mother was Bathsheba, and she gave it to him and depicts now the, the celebratory mood of the event, the day of the gladness of his heart. The day of the gladness of his heart. And you see reflected here, not just the voice of the Shulamite, but the voice of the groom and the gladness uh, of his heart. And as you read that, as you experience the, the, the moment here that we have in this Song of Solomon, you, you recognize and you realize that, that this is a picture of Christ. And this is a picture of Christ and, and how he feels towards you. That this amazing love, that, that his love is tremendous towards you. It is greater than we will ever know. We see that Paul talks about the love, the grace, and the kindness that is towards us in Christ and Jesus and, and how he shall be revealing what is the exceeding richness of his love and of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And, and so Christ's love for you, like the perfect groom here in this song of songs coming for his bride and, and the day of the gladness of his heart. We long for the day when we're going to be joined together with Jesus, but did you ever think that Jesus longs for the day when you're going to be joined together with him? The fullness, the gladness of his heart. You know, it was his love for us that kept him there upon that cross. It was his love for, for us that for the joy that was on the other side, he willingly endured and, and we are the joy. And this moment here, the gladness of his heart when we will finally be joined together, what he had to do and go through in order to rescue us and save us and to now finally be joined together with us that, uh, that we will never be separated uh, ever again. And so the, the celebration, the Solomon comes to the country where bride is and comes and gets her and now the procession would head back to the father's house. The ceremony and, and the celebration, that will take place at the Father's uh, house. And, and so now they are going to move back. The vows would be exchanged and they would enter into this banqueting time. This time of feasting that oftentimes would last for a, a week or more. And, and they would consummate the marriage on the wedding night. And then they would continue to feast for an entire week and everybody would come and would gather towards them and congratulate them and, and they would celebrate together. 
And so, in the Song of Solomon, they have come together and brings her back. They give the ceremony, and now it is time for the wedding night. And it begins now with verse 1 here in this fourth chapter. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. And your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Here we see that, that Solomon seeing her eyes uh, behind her veil again, saying that they were doves. And we had talked before about how they also reflected her calm and tranquil nature. And, and her hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. And so again, the dark hair, the ringlets, uh, and the beloved's uh, hair, the same beautiful quality. He praises her beauty. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, and every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. I like that. And none is barren among them. He looks at her teeth and says, you're not missing any. <laughs> That's good, you know, you're, you know, they all have their pears, you know, that's, uh, that's there on, uh, on your mouth. And, and your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. And your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. So her lips are, are red like a, a ribbon referring to the uh, outline and her teeth and lips make her mouth beautiful. Her temples here speaks of her cheeks and, and so they are red and attractive to him. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers all shields of mighty men. So I'm not exactly sure what verse 4 means, <laughs> but it was a compliment. <laughs> so, you know, we can start there. The, the, it's a metaphor. And so, you know, it, your neck is like the Tower of David. So it's not talking about, you know, she has this thick neck that's really strong uh, and powerful, but, uh, but the tower now could be emphasizing the, the, the stately bearing, the, the Tower of David. We see that this could represent this majestic tower, and she just looks majestic. She looks regal. She looks royal. These are all kinds of the imageries. It's built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. So this is in some way now pointing out these qualities. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Verse 6, until the day breaks. Yes, I'm just moving on to verse 6. <laughs> Intentionally. And the shadows flee away. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And so 
they would give their love to each other until when? Until the day breaks. And so they are going to enjoy the physical intimacy of uh, one another. A mountain of myrrh, a hill of frankincense, that's, those are large sums of, uh, of money. And so we see that, you know, greatly valued. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh. We see that he has been desiring to consummate the, uh, the marriage. He has been desiring her physically, but that, that physical desire has been restrained until now in its appropriate place. It is let forth. You are fair, my love. There is no spot in you. Solomon's praise, ascribing the beauty to his bride. She was perfect in appearance. We see that Solomon praises the various different parts of the bride's body, her, her eyes her hair, her teeth, her lips, her mouth, her temples, her neck, her breasts. We see here that he is praising and, and using words that uplift and exhort and encourage. And, and so men and women, we need to be exhorting and encouraging and building up one another. We see how complimentary his words are towards her. And, and we're going to see that these words continue throughout their marriage, not just in the courtship period and not just at the uh, wedding and at the beginning, but, but throughout. We constantly need to be encouraging one another, to be praising one another and to call out the good qualities in one another and to remind uh, each other the reasons to build up uh, one another. We see that God has called us to be these encouragers, these special, unique encourager that is in the first place in your life. And so... The world is going to tear down. <laughs> the world is going to seek to destroy and ravage. The enemy comes to kill and to destroy. And, and so he will seek to destroy the love in every single marriage. He will seek to take the unity that begins here. The enemy will try and break it apart and destroy it. We see even the nightmare, the fear of being separated and torn apart and the, the torment that is even in that. And so that constant exhortation and building up and praising oh, one another for the, the good qualities uh, that we have. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot uh, in you. And so here we see that, that once again, does it mean that she's perfect? No. But what he is saying is to me, you are absolutely beautiful. You are absolutely beautiful. And no, nobody's perfect, and nobody gets perfect. But... In the eyes of love, every single person is absolutely beautiful when viewed through the eyes of love. How important it is to continue to look at one another in marriage through the eyes of love. 
Will you know their deficiencies and their faults and their failures? You will know them maybe even better than they know them themselves. But in marriage, it is wise to keep your eyes looking at the favorite parts of your partner and to continue to stay in love, forcing yourself to keep your eyes half closed to, to those areas of imperfections that, that through time and even through revelation that of self to you that they will give, that they entrust you with their insecurities, their brokenness, their unlovely parts. Every single one of us is a work in process in Christ Jesus. Amen? And nobody's finished uh, yet. And we can either in marriage point out each other's areas that the Lord still has to work on, or we can celebrate the areas that the Lord has already done a work in one another. And the quality of your life in marriage is going to depend upon which path you travel on that. Here we see that there is only praise coming forth for one another. There is not criticisms. There is not fault finding. There is not blame casting that is going on. But there is a mutual building up of one another. The love and support in marriage from the spouse, from both sides, is a necessary component piece to enjoying the fullness of life that God has created for us to experience here upon this life. And so the the verbal use of words, whether you're a verbal person or not, is so important to the other person to hear those affirmations coming from the person that they value more than anybody else on the face of the earth. And we see that they are not shy in their use of their words. They are not restrained in their praises towards one another. And so I want to encourage everybody to be praising one another. In verse 8, come with me from Lebanon my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from a top of Amana, from the top of Sinar and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. And, and Solomon's asking his bride now to leave her thoughts of home and to put her fears behind her in order to just completely concentrate on, on him. We carry burdens and difficulties and issues and, and all in our life, but there are times when we need to set those down to just focus on the other person. Have you ever asked the other person to set your cell phone down? <laughs> the distractions in, in life, and I'm here, I'm in front of you. Can you see me here? We see Solomon is saying, you know, come away from, uh, from everything. And just uh, be with me. Verse 9. You have ravished my heart. My sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart. With one look of your eyes. With, with one link of your necklace. And, and so when he says you've ravished my heart. It means you've stolen my heart. 
It, it means uh, that if you just even glance at me, that I am just uh, undone. We see that he allows himself to be completely immersed and intoxicated by her love. It's interesting. It says, my sister, my spouse. And let's talk about that for a minute because that can be a little tiny bit confusing uh, here. Five times Solomon is going to call her uh, his sister. But I, I want you to know that in the ancient terms, that was a term uh, of endearment. And so uh, it emphasized the intimate bond between a husband and a wife. And so there was absolutely uh, no aspect uh, uh, of uh, relational kinship uh, here at all. They're not biological siblings uh, here at all, but it was just a, a usage back then of talking about how we're married, we're family, there's an intimacy, and so uh, we are now married. She is my sister, my spouse, and so this here speaking about that. How fair is your love? My sister, my spouse, how much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices? And, and so here we see that uh, once again, just intoxicated with, uh, with her love. You remember back in, in chapter one when, uh, when she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. Now we have here the, uh, the groom, we have the king, we have a beloved saying now how much better than wine is your love and the scent of perfumes and all spices. Your lips, oh my spouse, they drip as the honeycomb and Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of uh, Lebanon. We see here that, uh, that the beloved, the Shulamite, is giving herself freely to her husband with joy. Notice that she's not passive. She's not just being uh, acted uh, upon but she is completely engaged uh, uh, in their relational intimacy, in their physical lovemaking. Her kisses were as desirable as milk, as sweet as honey. And so here we see that once again, you know, the land that flows with milk and honey speaking about just the overarching blessings that God has uh, for us the plans that he has for us to, to purpose us and to give us now opportunities to be able to walk in the fullness of the joy of being connected to our Lord. And so when we invite Christ into our heart and we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it speaks of the intimacy now that uh, we have. So besides applying perfume to herself, we see that she also puts the perfume on her clothes. In verse 12, he says, A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. And, and so here we see now that, uh, that the king is praising her virginity the inaccessibility that she has kept herself for him. 
And so gardens were walled to keep out intruders. And springs were covered and fountains were sealed on sides to indicate private and ownership. And so she had kept herself sealed from all others, preserving her purity for her husband. And, and so here we see now he praises the, the, her character. Your plants, verse 13, are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron and calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the cheap spices. We see that Solomon here is conveying to his beloved how much he valued her purity. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. And so the mountain streams are, are refreshing, and so as the mountain streams are refreshing, so also did she refresh uh, him. Verse 16, now awake, O north wind, and come, O south, blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And so she wished to, to be with uh, his, uh, with her charms as available to him as, as fruit on a tree. She delighted herself in being desirable to him. She delighted herself in creating desire in him. And so brides uh, for the husbands, but also us as that bride of Christ. We want to be desirable to the Lord. We want to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, that, uh, that we are that blessing to him and so this beautiful courtship and now consummation of oneness speaks now of our journey with Christ from the day that we accepted him as Lord and Savior into our life and how now our whole lives are lived completely different. And we see that in the scriptures it tells us that, that we are a new creation, that we are radically changed. And as a new creation from that moment on in our life, we live it completely different. In a marriage, from the minute that the I do's are exchanged and the marriage is consummated, they are going to live differently than they have lived before they are now going to continue to nurture that love and to build that relationship, that marriage that they have begun. We also want to continue building our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the intimacy, the sweetness of fellowship, the exchanging of uh, love, the greatest uh, love, and we are the recipients of the greatest love. As the Shulamite woman here is the recipient of, uh, of the greatest love in the Song of Solomon, the King Solomon coming with his couch, 
speaks of the way in which the Lord is going to come and call for us when he returns for his bride. And we will spend eternity with him forever. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you. And in this greatest of love stories, we, we have a part and a piece in this as well. And so, Father, I ask that you would continue to do that work of changing us and molding us. So, Lord, help us to respond as the bride responds to the groom, as we respond to the pursuit of our hearts by you. Lord, may we also pursue your heart with ours. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.